This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now at Top Golf, you get half off golf Monday through Wednesday when you book in the app. It could be any Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Like this Monday, next Tuesday, and the following Wednesday. Or maybe this Wednesday, next Tuesday, and the Monday after that. Basically, any Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday is a good day, as long as you spend it at Top Golf. It's golf. It's half off. It's half off golf. Monday through Wednesday when you book in the app for a limited time only. So download the Top Golf app, book a bay, and come play around. Restrictions and exclusions may apply. Visit topgolf.com slash halfoffgolf for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. On the morning of January 15, 1919, the waterfront was bustling in Boston's North End District. People went about their business along the wharf like any other day. Horse-drawn carts clattered past busy shops. Bakers pulled steaming loaves of bread from glowing ovens. Paperboys hawked the morning edition to the shoppers and workers. Fishmongers chopped the heads from rows of silver mackerel that glistened in the pale winter light. A few minutes after the clock struck noon, a strange, ominous noise reverberated throughout the neighborhood. H.P. Palmer, an accountant at a North End electric plant, was penciling at his ledger when he heard it. A deep, throbbing growl, like a great beast awakening from a thousand-year slumber. He looked up from his work and squinted at the window. The glass panes were vibrating violently. Then the entire building began to shake. Palmer wondered if one of the elevated trains had derailed. He stumbled to the window across shifting floorboards and looked down at the street in horror and disbelief. An enormous wave of dark, viscous molasses was pouring through the North End's narrow streets, destroying anything in its path. And the deadly, sticky wave was headed right for Palmer's building. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second of two episodes on the Great Molasses Flood of 1919, an event caused by the collapse of a storage tank that sent 2.3 million gallons of molasses rushing down the streets of Boston. Last week, we covered the history and economic importance of the sugar trade in the Americas and how it led the Purity Distilling Company to cut corners when building the ill-fated storage tank in Boston's North End neighborhood. 
we learned of the natural changes molasses experiences with shifting temperatures that forced the tank to collapse. This week, we'll follow the flood of molasses as it wreaks havoc on the North End. We'll also explore the arduous cleanup process, the company's attempts to cover up its neglect, and the lasting effects the flood had on Boston. On January 15, 1919, the Purity Distilling Company had millions of gallons of molasses stored in a dangerously overfilled tank that was plagued by structural problems. Management refused to pay for even routine maintenance, even after warnings were raised by employees. Stored molasses ferments and releases gases over time, and it expands and contracts with fluctuations in temperature. That January morning, the temperature in Boston rose more than 30 degrees Fahrenheit, causing the molasses to expand rapidly. Already at maximum capacity, the tank burst. Steel rivets shot outward, riddling the North End waterfront like machine gun fire. The tank's ironside panels peeled back like the skin of an overripe peach. 2.3 million gallons of thick, glutinous molasses burst forth like a sweet, sugary tidal wave. As the wave plowed over the North End, Martin Clority was taking a lunchtime nap on the third floor of Six Cops Hill Terrace, just a block away. He was a lifelong resident of the neighborhood, as were his sister Teresa, brother Stephen, and his 65-year-old mother. The entire family was home when an ear-splitting groan reverberated throughout the North End. It shook the floorboards and rattled the windows inside the Cloherty house. Still, Martin slept through the cacophonous noise. But the 25-foot wave of molasses slamming into the townhouse woke him instantly. With barely enough time to rub the sleep from his eyes, Martin saw the molasses pouring into the crumbling house tossing him and his mattress against a wall. Several feet of the thick, sticky sugar filled the room in seconds. The force of the flowing molasses pulled the entire house off its foundation and into the street. Free from its anchor, the whole structure was carried like a leaf on a river until it slammed into a portion of the elevated train line nearby. Royal Albert Lehman was conducting one of the elevated trains along his usual North End route when the wave hit. It rocked the steel track structure, shifting the train and threatening to send it and all of its passengers into the swirling dark morass below. Lehman had to make a split-second choice, stop the train and risk the tracks crumbling beneath it or carry on through the rising flow of debris and molasses. Lehman powered the train forward until it cleared the wreckage. He looked down at where the tank had once stood. Anyone and anything that had been within the immediate vicinity was washed away without a trace. As the train rounded a bend in the tracks, Lehman felt an even more powerful crash against the elevated structure. A one-ton piece of the collapsed tank's steel siding sliced through a column holding up the train line causing the tracks to crumble onto the street below. Lehman slammed on the brakes and heard a squeal as the train slowed down. The train stopped just three car lengths from where the tracks had been mangled. Lehman had little time to be relieved. He looked out over the pieces of steel rail jutting out into empty space and saw nothing but devastation. 
The rolling black wave of molasses flooded the cellars of businesses and shops along Commercial Street. It also poured into the freight warehouses on the wharf, drowning the countless men working inside. Huge steel girders had been bent into 90-degree angles, twisted and even snapped clean in two. Shop fronts were crushed like eggshells, their contents spilled out onto the street and swirling the retreating tide of molasses. Mary Musco, who lived at four Copps Hill Terrace across from Martin Cloherty, watched in horror as the dark wave of molasses tore through the neighborhood. She saw the smashed Cloherty home pinned against the elevated train tracks. Mary knew Martin and several other family members were inside. She set off across the inundated street to find them. The slog through the tar-like substance was a laborious effort. Each step suctioned her feet deeper into the molasses. In a few seconds, both of her boots were gone, lost in the muck. Meanwhile, Martin was still sinking into the molasses that filled his bedroom. He coughed back mouthfuls of the thick substance as it flooded his mouth, nostrils, and throat. He was drowning. Then he heard the cracking of wood and felt himself buffeted through the remains of the flooded house. It felt like he was riding the current of a river and being swept over the edge of a powerful waterfall. But Martin was a laborer by trade and very strong. He used his powerful arms to tread the waves of molasses away and keep himself afloat. He let the powerful current carry him along while fighting to keep his head above the thick, bubbling surface. Finally, the wave of molasses pumped him out onto the middle of Commercial Street. Sputtering and blinking sticky residue from his eyes, Martin found his footing. Even when he stood upright, he was still chest deep in the stuff. He looked back at what was left of his home in horror, knowing his brother, sister, and mother were still inside. Assisted by Mary Musco and a group of off-duty sailors who were passing by, he dove back into the molasses-caked pile of wood and brick that had been his home. He managed to find his sister, Teresa, pinned beneath a bed frame. But the elder Mrs. Cloherty was not so lucky. When the wave hit, it sent an entire floor of debris down on her head, crushing her. She died instantly. Martin's brother, Stephen, was pulled alive from the wreckage by the sailors, shellacked head to toe in dark molasses. But he was so traumatized by the disaster that he couldn't speak. Martin looked over the remains of his neighborhood. The landscape of Boston's North End was utterly unrecognizable. It was no longer a bustling business district crowded with lively shops and cramped tenements. There was nothing left of the waterfront. Every square inch of the North End was buried under several feet of molasses. The neighborhood resembled a World War I battlefield, a bombed-out stretch of mud pockmarked by crumbling piles of brick, wood, steel, and human bodies. The only sound was the eerie crying of the wounded survivors calling out for help. Next, the residents of the North End find that many of their neighbors are still in grave danger. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Now back to the story. On January 15th, 1919, Boston's North End District was nearly destroyed by a torrential deluge of molasses. Neglectful management and an abrupt rise in temperatures led to the catastrophic collapse of a storage tank that released over two million gallons of the thick, sugary substance. Rivers of the stuff flooded the North End streets, demolishing entire city blocks of brick and wood buildings. Freight cars and automobiles crumpled like empty tin cans. Mailboxes and police call boxes were ripped from their bolts, and crates of goods stacked outside warehouses were tossed like discarded toys. Bodies of men, women, children, horses, and dogs, some alive, others not so lucky, choked the rapidly flowing rivers of syrup. The fleshy carnage mixed with chunks of wood and masonry and shards of razor-sharp industrial steel. One of the victims caught in the deluge was young Maria D'Astasio, who had been playing with friends in the shadow of the tank just prior to its collapse. Her broken body was fished from the dark swirling mass by a passing firefighter. Her brother, Antonio, was lucky. He was plucked from a whirlpool of molasses by another firefighter just before it sucked the small boy under. He had suffered a skull fracture after being thrown against a lamppost, but he was alive. A third child playing with the siblings, Pasquale Iantosca, disappeared entirely. His body was eventually found behind a railroad car. The tide of molasses had carried the car a full 50 feet, plowing into the 10-year-old boy and continuing on until it crashed into a wall. The force had battered Pasquale's little body beyond recognition. Even after the initial wave had passed over the area, survivors were by no means safe. Though the height of the molasses had crested and receded, the north end was lower than the surrounding neighborhoods. This meant that the molasses could not flow inland. Gravity would force it to flow back toward the waterfront, carrying the wreckage of the neighborhood with it. Firefighter George Leahy was trapped inside his fire station's boathouse at the water's edge. The wave of molasses had ripped the structure from its foundation and slammed it into the wharf. And now shards of metal debris were jutting through the crushed building. Each chunk could slice open skin or impale a body. A massive pool table, which the firefighters used to pass the time between emergency calls, had overturned in the flood and pinned Leahy against the floor. It was especially heavy, as pool tables of the era were made of slate stone and thick wood. Fellow firefighter William Connor was also trapped inside with Leahy. 
He was stuck under the weight of the station's collapsed roof and piles of destroyed furniture. Only a few sturdy chairs and a grand piano saved Connor from being completely crushed by the full weight of the building's upper floor. Patty Driscoll, another member of the fire station, dove through a second-story window to escape the molasses and went to find help. The structure groaned and cracked with the unsteady weight of the collapsed roof. The trapped men had less than 18 inches of space between the puddled molasses and the collapsed ceiling. If anyone walked on what remained of the boathouse, the surviving firefighters would be crushed instantly. But being crushed to death was only one possibility. Though the boathouse had survived the first rush of molasses, the thick liquid was still ebbing from the streets of the North End toward the sea. This slow, unstoppable tide of molasses carried all the remains of buildings and debris that the first wave had demolished. Now, gallons of this debris-ridden molasses flowed down into the flooded boathouse, filling it up even more. Debris was piling up against the few openings in the collapsed building, clogging them and blocking the flow even further. It was only a matter of minutes before the men would drown in the rising molasses pool. Connor was able to grab onto Leahy's foot, which stuck through an opening in the wreckage. Connor could hear Leahy pleading for help. Leahy shouted, This stuff will soon be up to my neck. For God's sake, get help or we'll die. Leahy would be suffocated by the rising molasses if Connor didn't do something. He struggled through the thick pool, which rose up to his ears, and eventually reached an opening to the outside. He positioned himself as best he could alongside what was left of the clogged opening and kicked out with a free leg. Slowly but surely, Connor loosened some of the debris and let some of the molasses flow out. But it wasn't enough. The molasses was endless, and it was still slowly filling the boathouse. But a few minutes later, Connor heard Driscoll return with a team of sailors from a ship docked nearby. Connor felt a heavy pull on his foot through the opening as the group pulled the struggling firefighter to safety. Then the rescuers turned to digging out George Leahy from under the pool table. They smashed through the small opening and crawled into the flooded structure. Some with saws, others with only pure muscle, they tore at the collapsed beams. But under the table, Leahy's strength was rapidly draining. It took every ounce of effort to crane his neck away from the bubbling, slurping molasses that threatened to fill his nose and mouth. The team of rescuers, now nearly 50 men strong, desperately cut away some of the wood beneath him. Leahy's voice was weakening, but he did his best to direct their efforts. The rescuers wielded acetylene torches with hissing blue flames to cut away the heavy material that held Leahy down. But soon, it was too late. Around 1 p.m., just moments before the sailors could reach him, Leahy lost consciousness. His head dipped below the surface of the molasses, and he drowned. Meanwhile, more rescue workers crowded into the waterfront on horse-drawn and mechanized vehicles. Firefighters, police officers, and hundreds of sailors and soldiers from the ships moored in Boston Harbor swarmed over the piles of sticky debris in a desperate search for survivors. Priests from the nearby North End churches sloshed through molasses in their black robes, helping rescuers remove debris, 
comforting the injured and performing last rites on the mortally wounded. Rescuers loaded the injured onto gurneys and ferried them to wagons and trucks for transportation to the nearby Haymarket Relief Station. Located about a half mile from the disaster site, the small hospital was transformed into a triage facility as the wagons rolled in with the injured. The station only had 25 permanent beds. By 2 p.m., Haymarket was quickly swamped with more than 40 victims of the flood. The overflow patients were bedded in temporary cots jammed into the corners of the small hospital rooms. Many were wrapped in white bandages that were soon smudged brown and gray from the molasses that soaked their shredded clothing. Personnel removed molasses from the patient's airways and cut off clothing, sometimes with skin still adhered to it. The whole hospital reeked with the sweet metallic scent of syrup mixed with blood. The sticky residue covered the floors, the walls, and the nurses themselves. They had never seen such filthy injuries. They raced to clean wounds as quickly as possible, worrying that the molasses might cause infection. As the doctors and nurses of Haymarket dealt with survivors, Boston City Coroner was having an extremely difficult time identifying those who had perished in the flood. Bodies pulled from the molasses were covered in thick layers of the stuff, like bedraggled seabirds recovered from an oil slick. They were almost entirely encased in hardening sugar that completely filled every orifice, including mouths, nostrils, and ears. His team was forced to scrub the bodies with water and baking soda to dissolve enough of the molasses to identify the victims. This is a process known as soda blasting, a mild form of chemical abrasion that can be useful in removing more stubbornly sticky substances. But some of the casualties weren't human and couldn't be brought to a hospital or morgue. Horses were knocked on their sides, unable to lift their heavy heads and break free from the sludge, snorting to clear their nostrils of bubbles of thick molasses. Police had no choice but to shoot many that were beyond help or that had broken limbs. It was more humane than letting them suffer, and they couldn't waste time when there might be humans in need. The sound of these gunshots reverberated across the inundated waterfront. Rescuers flinched as each animal was put out of their misery. The people of the North End had little time to immediately mourn their dead, human or otherwise. Their neighborhood along the harbor had been rendered unrecognizable by a completely mystifying and unexpected disaster. The flood had struck the landing point for most shipments entering the city from Boston Harbor, and the neighborhood was the area's life source. The residents and businesses couldn't afford to have it shut down. The ramifications of closing the waterfront would send shockwaves through New England and beyond. America was already in the throes of World War I. Its economic situation was already precarious. The aftermath of the molasses flood had the potential to put much of the country in even more economic peril. Coming up, the city of Boston desperately tries to repair the massive flood damage while the molasses company tries to hide their deadly neglect. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. 
Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Now, back to the story. On January 16th, 1919, the sun rose over a destroyed north end of Boston. With the new daylight, the neighborhood began to take stock of the damage. Buildings were toppled, and streetcars were crushed alongside mountains of molasses-covered debris. The landscape looked lifeless and desolate. The wall of sticky sugar had swallowed up everything in its path. Carts, horses, mailboxes, barrels, chewed them up and spat them out as mangled, sticky husks. Cleanup and recovery efforts immediately got underway. Workers first tried to remove the hardened masses of syrup with chisels and saws, but finally resorted to pumping millions of gallons of salty seawater to cut the congealed liquid. Salt is an excellent scouring agent, and when it is dissolved in a solvent like water, sodium and chlorine atoms are released. These particles produce chemical reactions with other atoms that strip hard-to-remove substances from surfaces. In addition to the salt, cleanup crews also used pounds of sand to absorb the liquid, just like in a modern-day oil spill. The grains of sand clump when they come into contact with liquid, incorporating a more solid and easily transportable form. As the cleanup progressed along the wharf, the search continued for additional victims amidst the debris scattered along the ruined waterfront. Any survivors were cared for at the crowded Haymarket Relief Station. As the rescue efforts discovered more victims, local and national newspapers, including the New York Times, carried reports of the disaster on their front pages. They listed the names, ages, and occupations of the dead as they were found. Two days after the disaster, on January 17th, the water of Boston Harbor was still stained dark brown by melting molasses. Over 300 rescue workers were still there, searching for the missing. As laborers yanked items from the sticky morass, Chief Justice Wilfred Bolster of the Boston Municipal Court squelched up and down the wharf, observing the damage to the North End. As he plodded from destroyed building to destroyed building, sidestepping piles of splintered wood and twisted steel, he could think only one thing. Someone was responsible for what happened here, and someone would have to pay. That responsibility fell solely upon Purity Distilling Company. Chemist Walter Wedger and U.S. Inspector of Explosives Daniel T. O'Connell examined the tank site shortly after the collapse. They developed a theory that the tank had disintegrated because of structural weakness. 
When combined with fermentation inside, internal pressure increased until the faulty tank failed. Purity Distilling's general counsel, Henry F.R. Dolan, pushed back against this theory, arguing beyond question that outside influences and what he called evilly disposed persons were responsible for destroying the tank. Dolan insisted that the tank had been structurally sound and that anarchist elements had tampered with it. He laid blame on Italian-American anarchists, a convenient scapegoat as the North End was heavily populated by Italian immigrants at the time. It also helped that Purity's parent company had been targeted by anarchist bombers just two years earlier. And around that same time, an anarchist group had detonated a bomb at the police station just around the corner from the Purity molasses tank. This was the official party line. Arthur P. Gell, the overseer of the tank, was instructed by his superiors in New York to remain silent and to let the company's lawyer issue any and all statements about the disaster. Above all, Arthur was to ensure that no city inspectors or law enforcement officials were permitted to confiscate the company's property, specifically pieces of the destroyed tank. Engineers from the Purity Distilling Company had been dispatched to Boston and arrived by January 17th to begin collecting remnants of the tank for transport to safe storage. A cover-up was underway, and it went all the way to the top of Purity's parent company, U.S. Industrial Alcohol. Engineers arrived from the USIA offices in Baltimore alongside company vice president M.C. Whitaker from New York. The team met Arthur Gell as he made his way over to the destroyed waterfront. Whitaker tried his best to remain calm and detached as he surveyed the damage. Any emotion he showed could betray the truth he was trying to hide. And that truth was that USIA was chiefly responsible for the disaster that lay before him. Along the way, the group was accosted by Boston's Commissioner of Public Works. The commissioner had spent the previous few days sloshing back and forth across the wreckage, comforting survivors. And he was enraged at what he saw as gross neglect on the part of the Purity Distilling Company. The commissioner rebuked Whitaker for delaying so long before sending representatives to the scene. And on top of that, the company was providing no cleanup assistance. Whitaker begrudgingly agreed to hire up to 150 men to assist with the cleanup. But he also made sure that his engineers would supervise the removal of the steel tank pieces to a nearby scrap metal yard. After the exchange, a member of the press who'd noticed the argument cornered Whitaker. He asked if the executive could give him some cause for the accident. Whitaker curtly said no. In a criminal inquest report filed a month later, Judge Bolster laid blame squarely on the shoulders of U.S. industrial alcohol and its subsidiary, Purity Distilling. Based on evidence provided by company engineers and government inspectors, Bolster concluded that the tank was completely insufficient from a structural standpoint to handle its load. The company, he said, had willfully neglected to meet its legal engineering requirements. Criminal proceedings against the company would go forward. But the judge also admonished the people of Boston and their government for not enforcing regulatory inspections of industrial sites. The people blamed the government for being complacent. 
the government blamed the people for underfunding its departments. All Bolster knew was that something needed to change in the way Bostonians monitored industry. Based on Bolster's report, Boston District Attorney Joseph Pelletier presented evidence to a grand jury the following week. Five days later, the grand jury issued its report, one that many Bostonians found disappointing. The jury found that although the tank did not comply with engineering regulations, the city's building department had been negligent in not ordering thorough inspections of Purity's worksite. On the issue of criminal negligence, the jury ruled that there was insufficient evidence to justify an indictment for manslaughter on the part of U.S. industrial alcohol. No criminal charges would be brought against anyone for the Great Molasses Flood. In a brief statement, U.S. industrial alcohol reiterated its belief that anarchists had used dynamite to blow up the tank. The company still held that it bore no responsibility for the disaster, even though there was no evidence of dynamite or any other kind of explosive found at the site of the flood. The surviving residents of Boston's North End were dismayed to learn they couldn't rely on the authorities for justice. They would have to find another way to seek redress for Purity Distilling's negligence. In 1920, 119 North Enders filed what was essentially a class-action lawsuit against the company, one of the first in Massachusetts state history. The battle was waged back and forth in court for three years. More than 900 witnesses were called to the stand. A court-appointed auditor dismissed the company's claims of anarchist sabotage for lack of evidence and found the company responsible. U.S. industrial alcohol ultimately paid out $628,000 in damages to survivors, the modern equivalent of over $9.5 million. The families reportedly received around $7,000 for each victim killed, which would amount to more than $100,000 in 2020. It was the only form of justice the survivors and victims' families would enjoy. Though the livelihoods lost may be calculated to some monetary sum, the costs of disasters far exceeds anything that can be measured in dollars and cents. Lives were lost, families and the homes they lived in for generations destroyed. The landscape of one of America's oldest and most storied cities was permanently changed. But Bostonians learned that day that the laws of physics were not sympathetic to such pain. This could all happen again, unless real change was affected. The Great Molasses Flood of 1919 marked a major turning point in the evolution of American public policy. It caused a watershed shift in how cities and states evaluated construction standards. Bostonians learned the hard way that, as industry grew, an understanding of physics had to grow with it. As Americans demanded vaster quantities of products and at a faster pace, the country's urban infrastructure would have to evolve. Especially as America's cities grew more and more crowded. Cutting corners in engineering could have lethal consequences. Humans have long battled against the laws of physics by building workarounds. Civilization has produced remarkable feats along the way. Skyscrapers, submersibles, rocket ships. But when ingenious human innovation comes up against Mother Nature's chaotic, unyielding forces, the slightest weakness can produce catastrophic results. 
For as long as humans attempt to tame nature, there will be more failures and floods. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Great Molasses Flood, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dark Tide, the Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919 by Stephen Puglio to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Jake Flanagan, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. (laughs) 